Hello and welcome. This is the Yoga Revolution podcast. My name is Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him. This podcast is an exploration of how we can live yoga right now and how we can apply the yoga teachings in our lives. We'll discuss the intersection of yoga and social justice, as well as how to build a practice that supports our activism. All my guests are contributors to my new book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. I'm so excited to be here today with my friend, Amber Carnes. Hey, Amber. Hey, how's it going? Good. It's funny because I, I feel like interviewing you is like interviewing my sister or something. It's like, <laughs> I know. We, usually we talk all the co- time anyway in a non-interview <laughs> context. And it's like, it's so, kind of funny. I know. I want to be like, yeah, like I'm the interviewer now. So, so actually I wanted to really introduce <laughs> you for reals, for real. Um, so Amber Carnes is a yoga teacher, trainer, ruckus maker, the founder of Body Positive Yoga and a lifelong student of her body. Amber trains yoga teachers and movement educators how to create accessible and equitable spaces for liberation and belonging. She also creates community for folks who want to build unshakable confidence and learn to live without shame or apology in the bodies they have today. Amber is a co-creator of the Accessible Yoga Training School and Yoga for All Teacher Training with Diane Bondi, uh, Accessible Yoga Association Board President and a sought-after contributor on the topics of accessibility, authentic marketing, culture shifting, and community building. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland with her husband, Jimmy. Hey, uh, you can find her at bodypositiveyoga.com. Well, we can talk about that later, but um, that felt very formal and funny with you, but I just thought it might be nice (laughs) to give you a formal welcome to my podcast. I know, it's so exciting. Now we got this whole (laughs) other place that we can talk. Right. Because basically, if people don't know, like we're, you know, co-hosts of the Accessible Yoga podcast, and you've basically taught me everything I know about podcasting. So <laughs> this feels kind of funny to me uh, to have you here. But you inspired me actually to make, to make this podcast um, about the book, you know, to use that as like a launching pad to have these yeah. conversations with all these amazing contributors. So thank you. Mm-hmm. How are you today? How are you doing? I'm good. You know, I'm, uh, it's like an overcast day. It's like a good day to work. So I'm mm. excited to have this conversation. It's kind of like a punctu a way to punctuate the day. So mm. like it's a meeting, but it's not really a meeting cause it's like, we get to have a fun convo. So yes, I'm happy to be here. Yes. And we get to talk about you. Get to talk all about Amber. <laughs> so what I've been trying to do in these conversations is to expand on the contribution that people made in the book. So in the book, so people, probably haven't seen the book yet. It doesn't come out till November, but um, we're launching these beforehand. And so what I do in the book is about, I I don't know, I have about a page dedicated to each contributor. There's a photo and then there's a paragraph quote. And I've been asking the contributors to read theirs. Would you read your quote from the book? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So it says, dominant culture conditions us to forget our own humanity and function as every man for himself. My yoga practice helps me to remember that I'm not separate from my humanity or from other people in this world. The yoga teachings speak to our interconnectedness and remind me that my actions have a ripple effect on others. And so my yoga practice is a journey of liberation, 
of my own heart, mind, body, and spirit. This yogic journey of turning attention inward isn't about becoming self-obsessed, but rather remembering my own humanity so that I may see the same in others and then be of service toward liberation and justice. Hmm. Yay, that is so good. That's a pretty good quote. I was, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's been, I was like, it's been a long time since I wrote that, but it's funny reading it back. I'm just like, yeah, that's what it's all about. Oh. <laughs> I know. So I just have to say, it's like I had that experience with my book. Like I got a an advanced review hard copy of my book just mm-hmm. last week. And I was looking at it. I was like, wow, that's pretty good. Like I, I can read this book. And I was just like, what, I know what I'm talking reading? about. All right, all right. <laughs> Thanks, past Jeevana. <laughs> it's so funny, you know, to read your own writing later. I don't know. I just right. kind of forget, you know. But yeah, you did a good job there. And <laughs> I thought maybe we could talk about it. So I also mentioned that the placement of your contribution in the book is actually in my favorite chapter, I think, in the whole book, um, mm. which I call Rainbow Mind Enlightenment Today. And Actually, this was meant to be the title of the book. This was the working title um, for the first year while I was writing it was Rainbow Mind. And I was really interested in this idea of, I don't know, kind of describing a different goal for our Mm. practice than Mm -hmm. the ones that I think we currently have, which, you know, to me, like the goal that I hear about is like, oh, enlightenment, like it's this idea of like some like yogi sitting in a cave meditating forever or something, right. or like transcending your life altogether, leaving the world in some way. Mm. And I was thinking about, is there a goal? Like, is there another goal for me? Like, is there a way that I want to, like, what do I want to achieve through my practice? And it's not only my finding joy in my life and, and fulfillment for myself, but actually service to my community. And that's what I, that's what I was trying to get out. It's like, what is it? How could we kind of identify that as a goal of our practice? Do you know what right. I mean? I do. Yeah. Well, actually you said it, you said it. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, it's, I feel like the, yes, yoga is this journey of like turning your attention inward and kind of like, you know, remembering who you really are and becoming more self-aware and all of that stuff. But I think if we stop there, you know, if we stop in the sort of place of like, oh, well, you know, I have this practice that really helps me to like manage my stress, or I have this practice that's really helped me to like accept my body so I can move through the world more confidently or whatever. Like those are all worthy goals. But I think if we just stop with the self, we really miss the boat. You know, we miss the, we kind of miss the point of the teachings themselves, which, you know, is not just about like solving my own problem or feeling individually happy or enlightened, whatever that means, right? Like I can, like you said, leave the world and sort of transcend, transcend what it means to like have this messy human experience. I think that's sort of the, the promise of enlightenment that we, we Mm. think sometimes or like this nebulous concept of like, oh, well, when I reach that destination, then I'm never going to have another negative thought about myself. I'm never going to feel pain. I'm not going to suffer. I'll be happy all the time. And like, to me, it's not even close to that. <laughs> I think mm. it's really more about that. Like when, you know, when our practice is very effective and powerful, and I think when our practice sort of goes toward the heart of the teachings, it's less about like, this isolation where you're, you know, above it all and more about really like digging down into those aspects of humanity that I think, um, 
I don't want to say like the dark side, but maybe like it's been sort of uh, positioned that way, right? That if like, if you're a good yogi and if your practice is real dialed in, then you won't be ill, you won't have pain, Mm -hmm. you won't be unhappy, you know, like, and if you have those things, somehow you're doing it wrong. And I think Mm -hmm. actually that really denies like the fullness of the human experience, which is like, no one is like the yoga teachings or, you know, the universe, God, whoever, like isn't guaranteed anyone that like, happiness is the way that it's going to be hundred percent of the time, even any more than we'd expect, you know, every day to be like a spring day. You know what I mean? Well, maybe if you yeah. live in California, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. you know, that, that like, I feel like, um, you know, that if we only use this practice to self-soothe or to, you know, reach greater levels of self-awareness or whatever it is. And we don't Mm -hmm. then take that information and that insight and sort of turn that lens outward and say like, how can I be of service? How can I, you know, share the parts of this practice that have been so such a game changer for me? You know, how can I look at these pieces of myself that I've been able to come to terms with, with the practice or like, you know, think like, I, I can work through difficult emotions or I can learn how to, you know, meet pain in my body. If that's something that I have going on, you know, the things that we learn in the practice, how can I use that sort of to, um, toward service in my community? Mm-hmm. How can I use that to have more empathy toward difficult people in my life? How can I, you know, use this technology of the practice to build capacity in myself to withstand difficult circumstances or have difficult conversations or do those things that are required of us when we, um, you know, I think, well, activism, the things that activism mm. requires, the things that um, if we're going to really turn our lens um, away from only ourselves and and look at like, okay, how are my neighbors doing? You know, how's the community around me um, doing? Where can I fit in to try to um, you know, be in yeah. service toward, toward other yeah. people that are, you know, on the same. Yeah, yeah no, same that's, path. I love that. Like, in actually in the quote that you read from the book, um, mm. the last part you say, um, the yogic journey of turning attention inward isn't about becoming self-obsessed, but rather remembering my own humanity so that I may see the same in others and then be of service toward liberation and justice. And I think, that's so important. Like you said, like it's, it's not the way that I normally hear about enlightenment being discussed in, in yoga where it's like a completely personal thing. And, yeah. I, and I think you said it so beautifully. It's like, how does it impact? How do my actions, how do actually, how does my practice help me and support me in, in dealing with the struggles in my life, reduce mm-hmm. my suffering, but also how can it reduce the suffering of others? Right. Um, and it reminded me of something I just want to mention. There was this research. There's been a couple of different research um, papers about this topic as, around mindfulness. And there was a really recent one that happened. It came out of uh, University of Buffalo that talked about how mindfulness can make people more self-centered. But right. what they found was that it depended on your what you were like beforehand. Like if you tend mm. to, if you were your tendency was towards being self-centered already and you practice mindfulness, it would actually exacerbate that. Mm-hmm. But if you tended to be very social and like, um, you know, concerned about other people, then mindfulness would actually increase that. So it was so interesting to me how mindfulness increased whatever was already there within your mind 
You know what I mean? Like it seemed to build yeah. the powers that you have. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. You know, I think the, um, I think one of the interesting things about this practice is that yes, it is this like individual pursuit, but most of the time we do it in a collective sort of way, right? Whether you're going to like a yoga class or jumping mm. on zoom with other people or whatever, you know, maybe you're listening to a, a guided meditation, even when it's sort of a one-on-one -on -one like that. Um, oftentimes like the practices with other people. And I think that, um, is a really powerful thing that happens with, um, or a powerful opportunity for folks when we do this like very personal thing, but in a group. Um, and yoga is not the only place, you know, that you can have these types of community experiences for certain. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that um, I think that it can be an interesting opportunity to like see what that brings up for us. You know what I mean? Like oftentimes I think other people are kind of a mirror. <laughs> so yeah. by which I mean like, okay, if I'm, you know, irritated by something somebody's doing, like I kind of need to look a little deeper and be like, well, why does that bug me? You know, what about that brings up something in me? You know, it's usually like our own stuff. And I think that sometimes, you know, community is a place where we can not only kind of work through those types of things together, but also uh, really can sort of, um, I think, give people a sense of possibility of things that they might not see in themselves um, when they see it happen in community. You know what I mean? Um, I think mm -hmm. about the way that like, uh, that I like to do body image um, kind of work. And it is really similar to the yoga practice where, you know, it's a, it's a very individual thing that's based on your own experience and your thoughts and feelings and all the conditioning that you have. But when we come together, then we can share insights. We can see other people, you know, maybe show us a different way to be or to live that we mm. couldn't have really sensed on our own. And mm. so I think it's interesting what you said about like the mindfulness thing. And like, if I think it maybe would be interesting to know, like, okay, the people they studied, you know, were they practicing by themselves or were they in community? Mm. And <laughs> would that change those results or something, you know, because I think that, um, well, when we talk about mindfulness, you know, Oftentimes it is attached to some kind of spiritual tradition, but it's a cognitive exercise, right? So like mm -hmm. if our brain already has a bias toward one thing or another toward, you know, selfishness or, you know, other mindedness or however we want to say that, then we're probably just going to go in the direction of our, our own bias or like the way we do the world. And but I think one of the ways that commu community can like really be powerful is that we can see other ways of being, we can see like other options for, oh, this person is in this kind of body and they show up without, you know, regret and shame or, you know, this person, um, do you know what I mean? That like, it's easier to, to imagine a possibility for yourself if you see someone else do it first. So mm, anyway. yeah, well, that's a benefit of community too, is that can, people can be models for you, um, good or bad actually, you know, in terms yeah, of what right. you want to do or what you don't want to do. But I was going to, I was wondering if you could share, like, what are some of the actual practices that you find most useful in those settings? Like, so you talk about community a lot, but like to you, is it, I don't know, is it the socializing part? Is it the actual, like doing yoga in a group? Like what, is there some particular piece that you emphasize, like when you lead a retreat or something? 
when you used yeah, to you do know, it in person. <laughs> yeah, I used to do it in person and now <laughs> it's a little more nebulous, but I hope to be back in person again soon um, when it's time. Uh, I think for me, um, there's a couple of things that sort of are the, I don't know, the special sauce or like the magic that shows up when uh, with community. Um, one is, well, I'll just back up and say that like, when I'm curating a space, um, a community space, like, A, I sort of try to go back to, like, what were the times that I felt really, like, seen or held or understood? And what were the times that, you know, I felt like I didn't belong? And both of those things definitely inform the way that I construct um, space for community learning. Um, and so I really try to spend a lot of time, not only thinking about the physical space, like, you know, is it accessible to everyone? Do I have seating that fits all kinds of bodies? You know, do I have, uh, if I'm going to, you know, teach in some way, do I have like slides and a handout or, you know, like I try to think about like ways to just make it accessible generally, but then depending on the type of, you know, experience that I'm trying to curate or create, like, that might mean that there's a restriction on who's allowed to come to the space, right? So for instance, um, I've taught uh, intensives about like body image and diet culture and things like that and have specified that like this is taught by and for uh, fat women, right? Because like the lived experience of a certain group of people, it can be really powerful to be in a space where there's this understanding and sort of a shared, not lived collective knowledge around like what it's like to grow up in a fat body or what it's like to, you know, if I think of like, you know, my friends that lead retreats for women of color, like there's a very um, specific lived experience to being a woman of color in America. And like, if you get together with a group of people, that's a, that doesn't have that experience. It's hard to get to, I think, the heart of issues or really feel like you can share in an open way when there might be people there like trying to talk you out of your feelings or be like, really, was it that bad? You know, like those types of things that I think all marginalized folks have had to deal with sort of the like, you know, uh, downplaying or questioning or, you know, was it really that bad sort of, you know, things. And I feel like um, when we're in these groups where we can sometimes like the space is curated to be specific for a population or for a group of people, it can be very powerful, A, only to be able to feel like you can openly share and people will have some idea about what you're talking about, you know, in a real like embodied way. But also in the fact of representation, because I feel like you know, if you have marginalized identity, if you've grown up in a body that is like the opposite of what society says is good or desirable or hot or like worthy or whatever, right? Depending mm -hmm. on your, your identities, um, you know, then that means you probably throughout your life have not seen a lot of positive representation, like hot, happy, healthy people who look like you, you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Or like people who are, are shown as success objects, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a fat woman. I've been fat since my teenage years and growing up, like the representation that I would see of people that look like me on media and stories and movies and books, magazine ads, all that stuff was either like, I was completely missing, right? Like mm -hmm. I could, you know, as a teenager flip through 17 magazine and not see one single person that looked like me, but everyone in the magazine was like, you know, thin with perfect teeth and, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. 
Like that implies something, right? And then also when I did see representation of fat people, it was usually, you know, they're the butt of a joke. They're chasing a partner that doesn't want them. They're Mm. stupid or lazy or whatever, right? And so all that stuff, you know, all that conditioning, I think goes into how we approach the world, how we see ourselves, the possibilities and chances that we might take for ourselves because of what we think we deserve or what we think we're allowed to do. Um, And so when we get together with a group of people that have a shared lived experience like that, I think the representation of just like being in the room with a bunch of other people who look like you, who, Mm -hmm. you know, have grown up like you, who have the same background, like that is powerful to see, oh my gosh, like here are a bunch of people who are, you know, living their lives and, um, and be, and see in a positive way that like, it is not, um, what society has conditioned you to believe, like doesn't have to be true. And so I think that's a very, um, that's something that a lot of people have commented to me, um, in the past about these types of experiences that just like to be surrounded by other people. And like, like I said, like community is a mirror, you know, that kind of like says like, this can be you too. Like, I remember the first time that I, you know, back in the day when live journal was a thing, I guess I'm, I'll date myself a little with that in the internet era. But um, that was like the first place I encountered fat activism on the internet. And I remember like being in these like fashion communities on live journal and seeing like people who were like way fatter than me and like wearing stuff that like and looking confident and like, you know, like being in relationships and doing all the things. And it was kind of like, oh, wow, I just, I guess whoa, it broke my brain a little bit, you know, to see that. And so I think, you know, representation is definitely something that I'm really passionate about. Um, And I've been really encouraged to see the huge shift in representation just in the past few years with yoga. And I think social media has actually, you know, democratized that to a little degree, I think, Um, because there are so many, you know, brilliant people out there like creating content and, um, and showing up, um, unapologetically the way they are. And so anyway, yeah. I don't know, we might've gotten off a little off well, topic no, by I, this I point. I think but... you got it. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> what I was interested in. I wanted to hear about that, like about how you create that space. How do you, how do you bring people together in the name of yoga? And I don't know, maybe you could, could you talk about why a little bit more about why it doesn't happen like i'm just curious about the culture that exists within yoga like you said it's been getting better but it still feels like yeah there's a lot of misunderstanding a lot of obstacles about what the practice is for and i just wonder if you have thoughts about that like wh- what is it that we're not seeing like what do you think yeah i think that you know there are a lot of you know i talk a lot about barriers to this practice for people you know and i i I think that no matter what marginalized identity you might hold, um, you've probably encountered them um, in any uh, fitness or wellness context, let's just say, um, here in the West. And so I think that the way, you know, it's a fact that the dynamics, the power dynamics and the norms from dominant culture, right, from our wider world, capitalism and patriarchy and racism and all like white supremacy, the way all that stuff shows up in the bigger world and in society, like trickles down to our institutions, right? Our yoga studios, our gyms, our churches, our schools, um, and into our individual dynamics too, right? So, you know, while, uh, 
you know, those of us who are our yoga teachers or community builders, like the people that create the space, you know, might be completely invested in like including everyone. We still have, you know, biases and conditioning that has trickled down from dominant culture. And I think that, you know, it's a tall order to not only sort of like think about all the little details about how I'm going to make my class accessible and like, you know, is the, is the place wheelchair accessible and what about childcare and like all the different aspects of accessibility that I feel like we, you know, need to think about, but also some of the biggest work um, for us that want to curate space is really addressing like our own biases and our own conditioning and, and being mindful enough to see when that comes up, to notice it and to be able to react appropriately to it. Um, By which I mean, and and I just want to pause here and say that um, I want to shout out Kimberly dark and her work around this. Um, She uh, curates a lot of different spaces where people can learn about um, encounter and work through internalized and implicit bias um, around those types of people with those types of bodies. And you can, you know, fill in whatever blank there. Um, And so Kimberly's work, I think, really helps people to like get to the core of of those types of issues. So I just want to shout her out and say, like, Mm -hmm. look her up. She's got some great workshops and opportunities. I've been to a retreat with her around this topic and um, really valuable. But I think that the you know, it's hard work. It's hard work to. Um, A, notice that stuff when it comes up in you, right? And I'm talking about stuff like, you know, a racist thought or a fat phobic thought or an ableist thought or whatever, right? Or coming up against an assumption about a student that you might have in a class, right? Like let's say a student comes in with a certain kind of body that you assume isn't going to be strong or flexible or able to do whatever. And then that person does it. And then now you're stuck with this like, oh, wow, what do I do with that information? Right? Like when that stuff happens, it's uncomfortable, right? We don't want to think about ourselves as someone who's biased or bigoted or whatever. And so I think that moment, the moment when we like are made aware of it is a really big opportunity to either like avoid uncomfortable feelings that are going to come up and justify and say, you know, oh, well, I'm not racist because X, Y, Z. And then you trot out your like good person resume or, you know, to argue with the person or whatever, or just to ignore, you know, maybe if we don't have the information we need, But I think the really rich opportunity is to like notice that discomfort and kind of lean into it a little bit. Like, okay, I'm having a reaction to this person. I can tell that there's something about them that is, you know, is, is bringing up this resistance in me, whether that's like, okay, I've been taught that this body type is really unhealthy or I've been, you know, this person seems angry to me. And so I'm going to react to that. Right. And so maybe, maybe what's coming up is actually this conditioning that you have, um, that is well, like, I, you've been a story. Oh yeah. Yeah. An example, like, cause for yeah. me, my, I think it was maybe the first class or the second yoga class I ever taught. And mm-hmm. I had an older woman come into the class who had a cast up on her whole leg and she, you know, and I was really young I mean, that was a long time ago. And, um, even though my grandmother had taught me yoga, you know, when I was a small child, I still had been trained a certain way. And that part of it also is the ability to then question your teachers, you know, and question what yeah. you taught. But I, um, I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I was overwhelmed by the idea of teaching. And then here, here, she had walked in with crutches into the class. I thought, oh my mm-hmm. God, I don't know how to help her. And, um, 
And then like the minute we started, I saw, oh, wow, she knows what she's doing. Like she was like very advanced student in my mind and that she had, you could just tell she was very confident, knew how to take care of herself, knew how to practice mm -hmm. and was like beyond me. You know what I mean? It was like, she didn't need me <laughs> right. to be doing anything. And I just thought, wow, that was really an incorrect assumption that I made there. Yeah. And so like, you know, in that moment, right, you have the opportunity to do a couple of things. One, you could, you know, ignore the student or, you know, take out your frustration at being wrong on the student by not serving her or, you know, whatever. Or you can um, decide to like, okay, notice and learn from that. And I think like getting better at that moment of, okay, what can I learn about myself in this moment? And how can I untangle you know, some of those messages from dominant culture that we know not to be true, but to really be in service to like maintaining the status quo where like the people with the most privilege get to keep the power. And so like when we mm. question that stuff, when we disentangle, um, you know, lived experience from like what we've been told and what quote unquote everybody knows about those kinds of people, you know, I think we give power back to our students. I think we bring personal power back to ourselves because then we're not just beholden to whatever conditioning we grew up with, but we can really lean into, like, I think this bigger question about, like, um, you know, honoring the full humanity of all of our students and honoring, you know, even and especially people with a lived experience that's different than mine. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think we get taught a lot of sort of, I don't know, math equations about bodies, right? Like if you eat right and exercise, then you'll never get disease and you'll be, you know, the healthiest you can be. <laughs> and like, that's die. not right. Like we're taught these sort of really oversimplified things that like, mm, well, inputs matter, but also there's all these social determinants of health. And so like, it's not actually under our control. Right. So I think that when we can start to kind of realize like through these, experiences like what you described when you encountered the student and you know you probably had some ableist conditioning about like what this person was going to be able to do they defied that expectation and now we get to like unlearn that and be like mm -hmm. okay not all those experiences are equal and so I guess I'm just saying that like that work is really worth doing and it's especially worth doing if you're going to be someone that curates community and spaces for people to do this type of personal growth and transformation that I think we're asking them to do with the yoga practice, right? Yeah. Because there's a very big difference between teaching a class that's essentially like a fitness class where you do some yoga poses, right? Where it's like, it's focused on, I guess, like exercise or whatnot, and actually asking people to do this practice of yoga, which by the way, <laughs> you know, includes a lot of really demanding things like sitting with your own thoughts and uh, mm -hmm. noticing the uncomfortable sensations in your body and, yeah. you know, trying to keep yourself focused on your practice, like, right, all these things that we're maybe not taught to do at all. So we're beginners at them. And also they're really difficult and demanding cognitively, physically, all of that. So to me, it's like, we can't even be asking people to like dig deep into a spiritual practice if we're not able to create a space where they feel safe enough to actually like relax enough to do that. Do, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes. And I yeah. was thinking for, for practitioners as well, like I think there's another, it goes another direction as well, which is like if you are 
struggling to find a community, to find a sense of belonging within, you know, spiritual practice or wellness. I always, I like to ask myself, like, who's benefiting from my oppression? Like, who's benefiting mm-hmm. from my lack of um, being welcome? Like, wh- why mm-hmm. is that there? It's not simply, it's not by mistake. You know, there is a system and it's not like maybe one person that designed it, but it's like, there's a system in place that um, keeps us down. And I think that's part of our work is not just as teachers, but also as students and practitioners to look at, you know, why, why do I feel that? And maybe to leave that, you know what I mean? To not give that person Mm. your money. Like if you're going to go into a studio where you feel kind of like iffy about it, like maybe I don't really feel welcome here. I always Mm -hmm. feel a little insecure. Maybe don't give them your money, go somewhere else or speak up and ask them or tell them, you know, I don't really feel welcome here because you do this and that, you know, Mm -hmm. not, it can be hard to speak up, but I'm saying to look at not always blaming yourself too, but looking at the system. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was incredibly helpful. (laughs) I have one other angle that I want to ask you about. Cause so in this chapter um, where I have your contribution, I, I kind of look at what is, what are some essential yoga philosophy concepts that support this idea of yoga as service and social justice and as the goal of the practice? So I, I was in particular, I look at ahimsa and say, you know, mm. what does ahimsa really mean? And so I guess my, that I have that question for you. I can tell you what I say in the book, but I also just curious what you think, because I, I really look at like, what does it mean? What does nonviolence mean? And what does that mean if you really um, live that teaching? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think a lot about Ahimsa and I, you know, when I, uh, when I was teaching yoga philosophy to the 200 hour training that I was um, running right before the pandemic started, um, one of the things that we would always say was like, when we look at these other things like satya or, you know, the other, um, yamas and niyamas, like one thing we always said was like, check against ahimsa. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's the way to, to know, uh, if you're kind of in the right direction. And so I think it is one of those kind of like foundational things for me because it speaks to so many other parts of yoga philosophy. So if we're talking about, you know, nonviolence or non-harm, I don't know, the, the, the yamas and niyamas sometimes like sound a little funny, like they're telling us not to do something. So I like to, to look at the other side of it and say like, okay, so what are we supposed to be doing? If we're not supposed to be harming, what's this flip yeah. side of that? And so, you know, for me, ahimsa is really about, I think, I think love would be the word, but love mm-hmm. is such a, I don't know, it means so many things. Um, I think it's the type of uh, love that is like, proactively non-harming, right? So to me, that speaks to things like non-attachment, right? Like if I really love someone or, you know, want the best for them, right? If I want the opposite of harm to come to them, which is Mm -hmm. like, right, all the good things in life or whatever, then am I, you know, am I loving them in a conditional way? Or am I really just accepting who they are as a person and, you know, moving from that place. And I think for me, non-attachment, you know, a lot of times I think non-attachment is taught, uh, sort of as like, you know, attachment to like having a big fancy house or being successful at a job or whatever. But for me, I find like always comes up 
with thinking about outcomes, you know, Mm -hmm. like, am I attached to, uh, like this relationship looking a certain way, or can I actually just let this person exist, um, as they are and want the best for them and, you know, have shared goals or whatever, but let them, you know, kind of like do the world in their way without trying to control and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think that, you know, ahimsa also is about, um, not only love for other people, but love for yourself, mm-hmm. which to me speaks about like having appropriate boundaries. Yeah. Um, you know, because having boundaries isn't about controlling other people's behavior. It's really about deciding what is acceptable um, mm-hmm. out of love and respect for yourself. Right. And, and what is, what is allowed in your life or not. And so, mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. It brings up these other sort of um, areas for me. And I, I, I think that, you know, one kind of powerful way to think about this is breaking it up by like thoughts and words and deeds, you know, for mm. me, sometimes it helps to kind of get into the different areas of it. And, um, and I think that points a lot to like how, how our minds show up in this practice with like, okay, if I'm thinking about ahimsa non-harming, I could go to something like I can zoom in to something like, I don't know, body image, right? Like when I stand in front of the mirror, what are my thoughts about my body? Are they harming or are they helping? Are they coming from a place that, you know, feels aligned to, uh, to this concept of ahimsa or are they, you know, going to be damaging because they're unfairly asking something of a body that, you know, like conform to society's, you know, norms or whatever. Um, and then, you know, how am I speaking about my own body? How am I speaking about it to myself? How am I speaking about it to others? Um, how am I speaking about others bodies that look like mine? You know, these are all things I think to bring awareness to. Um, and so, yeah, maybe I'll just pause there for a second. I, I wanted to, I totally agree with what you're saying. That's, that's what I talk about in the book. And I, I thought I could read a quote that I have here actually by, mm. of all people, Matthew Remsky, because, um, you know, Matthew wrote mm-hmm. a early translation of the yoga sutras that I find very interesting. Um, he says, so he's talking specifically about, um, how we've talked, how we address Ahimsa in yoga culture, especially in our translations and commentary about Um, the sutras Mm. and he says if we're going to continue using this text in contemporary yoga culture we must acknowledge the vacuum of love in whatever way we use the term today at its center at its center and recognize that we have voices where patanjali is silent perhaps we can start by reversing the purpose of his ethical discussion so that our intention behind treating others kindly is not about internal equanimity but about the exploration of empathy as a path to self and other growth I like that. Yeah, which Mm -hmm. feels like really connected to, well, then I have your quote actually right after that, but it feels really connected to what you always talk about and the way that I feel like you and I both are trying to share the yoga teachings in a more community-oriented way, you know, not simply about you individually, but also about your role in the world and how are you impacting other people? How can you create that space if you're a holder of space? How can you, you know, make people welcome? But also how can you find your way, you know, as a practitioner um, and to help kind of 
redefine what some of these ideas mean, like ahimsa. Why do we think of it like not harming when, like you said, it's really about loving? I mean, isn't loving the opposite of harming? Um, right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, thanks for that. Anything else you want to share about? And I, I know that you probably don't want to talk about this, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the future of your work. I know this is something <laughs> you've been... I know, it's share? a... It's a weird topic. So I really miss building community in person. Um, I'm not sure when the right time to do that is. It, you know, I know people are having vaccinate only events, and I think that's great. And I don't know, I'm just not there yet. Um, but I'm hoping in 2022 that I'll be running retreats again. I hope to be doing some in person teaching again. I don't think that I'm going to uh, be as intensely traveling as I used to be, um, even if, you know, a resolution comes to this pandemic. I think that uh, I've really enjoyed uh, being a little closer to home. And so I don't know, you know, I've been daydreaming a little bit lately and trying to decide, like, how do I want to engage with yoga land. Um, and I think it's, it's probably going to look something like a combination of some online teaching. You know, I have my course with Diane and I teach with you and the training accessible yoga training and all of that stuff. But, um, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm going to start running some workshops or maybe some teacher mentoring type of situations online. And then I'm thinking more local, um, for the events that I plan to host mm. and, Sort of like some fun, you know, one-off pop-up things like, I don't know, a silent disco in the park and things that maybe can be a little bit lower risk for folks um, COVID-wise and also sort of uh, scratch that itch for community. And so until it's, you know, an appropriate time to have something like a retreat where we have shared accommodations because like that gets a little more complicated, um, you know, logistical-wise. But I've been, you know, thinking about those types of things and, and I really, I love working with teachers. And so I don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet, but I'm hoping in 2022 to have some kind of, you know, longer term uh, engagement for teachers, whether that's, you know, uh, some kind of mentoring circle or an advanced training or something. So yeah, there's things in the works. My brain is brewing. I've had a lot of like uh, stressful uh, life situation stuff happening with, you know, injury and family stuff and, you know, all kinds of just like, you know, circumstances that, uh, have kept me pretty busy, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that soon I will be able to dig more deeply into teaching. Cause I really have missed, I've missed doing more of it. And so, um, just know that like going forward, my, uh, you know, the, the topics that I am always passionate about are going to still be part of my work. Um, body acceptance, uh, creating community spaces that feel equitable and welcoming for everybody, um, accessibility, uh, I don't know, exploring this topic of like what it means to belong, like is really, mm -hmm. is really a big one for me. And I think, I think, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot more about community building, especially in the past 18 months when I haven't been able to really do that in the same way that I have for the whole rest of my life. Um, where we get together in person and we do this like individual thing in a group, whether that's, you know, riding bikes or hiking or practicing mm -hmm. yoga or, you know, doing body image work or whatever. Um, I think it's forced me to think a little bit more creatively about what that looks like. And so, um, yeah. you know, I've been yeah. thinking about like 
how do you teach people to do that? Like to mm. really create a space that, um, that feels good to everybody that's accessible. And so I'm hoping to dig a little bit more deeply into that. I've, I've, I've done it a ton throughout my life and in a bunch of different contexts, but I haven't really taught a lot about that. And so I think it's time yeah. to, you know, to try to pass some of that on because I feel like, you know, you even asked me questions today about it that I'm like, Oh yeah, I've never maybe really articulated this to anyone, but there are, you know, I think there is a lot of value in being able to create a space where not only, you know, I want to be real clear, just maybe as we're like wrapping this up, that like, for me, creating a space where people feel like they belong is not about like, oh, well, we don't want to hurt anyone's fifis. You know, it's not like some politically <laughs> correct thing to do. And I don't think and I think it's way more powerful than than folks think sometimes where it's like, OK, uh, cool. You have a name tag with pronouns on it. Big deal. But it is a big deal. And I'll tell you why. Like when you can show up in a space and not feel like you have to, like, leave a part of yourself outside the door to belong, which if you have marginalized identity, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I think that. When you come into a space like that and you can relax your defenses a little bit, you can let the, you know, one third of your brain that would have been tied up in the pro in the project of like, am I okay? Is everyone checking me out? Is, you know, can I relax? Can I like, if you can just reclaim that energy back, then you're in an, then you're in a space where you really, it, you are, con it is conducive to learning. It is conducive to growth and to transformation. It's conducive to a uh, greater level of self-awareness, all the things that we want from our yoga practice. And that like, I think it's such a big deal to help folks get to that place where they feel like they belong so that whatever you're there to do can actually happen, you know? Yeah. So I I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about talking more about that with folks. And yeah, I'm, I'm, we'll you're so good at that. it. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're, plotting for the future um, <laughs> right I just want to I also want to thank you for all the work you're doing for accessible yoga association the nonprofit as the board president which is I know a lot of work and it's just you know an amazing offering that you're that you're sharing with all of us people probably don't know about all that but um <laughs> I really appreciate it and and just you know all the ways I get to work with you I'm very grateful for so thanks for this today and People can find you. I know they can find you like on Instagram, but also bodypositiveyoga.com. Is that right? Any, anything else? Yeah, go to my website, which is very uh, 2017 me, but uh, it needs to be updated. <laughs> but if you drop your email, you'll get on my mailing list and like any important stuff that I do is going to go out through there. And I hang out on Instagram and Facebook um, sporadically these days uh, while I'm sort of incubating and figuring out what's next. Um, but those are good places to follow me too, but email list, you'll definitely, uh, hear from me cause then it's not beholden to an algorithm or whatever. Um, so yeah. if you want to keep in touch, just go to my website and drop your email. Um, and you can find me other places on YouTube, stuff like that, but, uh, that's the best place. And then, uh, please subscribe to the accessible yoga podcast. Um, you mm -hmm. can find that, uh, I don't know, through accessible yoga links, um, or Google Accessible Yoga Podcast, and you can hear me and Jivana uh, run our mouth some more on these topics <laughs> if you are interested to do so. Exactly. <laughs> yes, please join us over there as well. Um, 
Accessible Yoga podcast. Yeah, wherever you can find your podcast. Probably wherever you found this one, you'll find that one too. That's right. All right. Thanks, Amber. Thanks so much for joining me today. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again. Bye. Okay. Thanks so much for listening and joining the conversation. Yoga is truly a revolutionary practice. Thanks for being here. If you haven't already, I would love for you to read my book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. It's available wherever books are sold. Also, you can check out my website, jivanaheyman.com. There's some free classes on there and a meditation, and you can find out more about my upcoming trainings and other programs. Hope to see you next time. Thanks. Bye.